1: I am Latricia, and with me is my co-host,
0: Phyllis. Hey, Phyllis. Hello, Latricia, and hello out there, Difference Makers. Today, we have a special guest, Alicia Diggs. Alicia Diggs is a native of Philadelphia, PA, but currently resides in North Carolina. She has a bachelor's degree in social work, a master's degree in public health, and is currently working on a Ph.D., in public health with a focus in advocacy and leadership. We're going to get deep into that this episode. Alicia is also a HIV AIDS activist, speaker, and the author of Standing on My Healing from Tainted to Chosen. Alicia has spoken at schools, community health events, and conferences, as well as appeared on several radio stations and television shows including BET's Wrap It Up campaign. Welcome to Living the Principles,
2: Alicia Diggs. How are you doing? I am absolutely great, and it is an honor to be here today with you all. Thank you so much for having me. Thank
0: you for coming.
1: Yes, thank you so much for being here today. This is a very, very important topic that we want to talk about today. March 10th, is National Women's HIV Awareness Day. So we want to talk about that. First, let's talk about why is this day important?
2: This day is important to definitely recognize all those who are living and thriving with HIV, as well as continue the education and support of preventing new HIV cases. So we definitely want to lift up our women, women are 14% in population, but over 60% in new HIV diagnosis. So we want to make sure that, you know, the information is raised to our women as well as full, all of our populations.
1: Awesome. And Phyllis gave your, your great bio, but one of the things she didn't mention is that you are a woman living with the HIV diagnosis. Will you share a little bit of your story with us, please?
2: Absolutely. So I am a woman living and thriving with HIV. It's been 20 years. Originally, when I was diagnosed, I did have education on HIV, but I thought I was taking all precautions to prevent having an HIV diagnosis. But it happened, and I had a decision to make. Either I'm going to curl up in a ball and allow this thing to destroy my life, or I'm going to stand up and take a stand for myself, my health, and my community. And I did just that. Um, you know, years ago, as I started to tell, you know, my story of a woman living with HIV, you know, the question was always raised, well, how did you contract it? It's 2021 and um, not making light of anything at all, but it's truly not important how It was contracted or how I contracted it. The point is, is that I am living and thriving through it, making a difference in our communities and making sure that so many people understand that, yes, HIV is still a thing. While many of us are living healthy lives, it is now a chronic manageable disease, but it is a disease that cannot be cured at this point. So we are managing very well, but there are still people who are contracting HIV for many, many reasons. Um, It was the thing of, you know, wrap it up, you know, use a condom, practice abstinence. And we understand that in our community, some of those things are not happening. Some people are contracting HIV for multiple reasons, not, you know, the mythical reasons of, well, they're promiscuous or they're drug addicts or, you know, whatever. The cliches are: the main thing is that HIV is still happening. People are are having lack of access to resources, to medication, and those of us who do have access to medication and resources, we try to share that with other people on how to stay in care and how to, you know, make sure that you're able to communicate fully with your physician.
0: Alicia, as I hear you talking, I. Hear one phrase that you say, you say a person living and thriving with HIV. I really like that. Mm -hmm. And I think about some of the language that I use, and it kind of makes me cringe now because Mm -hmm. we would say things like, oh, you know, you got that stuff. We would use that type of language in the community. Like we wouldn't even say, we wouldn't even say the letters. We wouldn't even say the word. So can you expand on the importance of using language and what language is offensive that we may not know is offensive?
2: I'm glad you brought that up because I, too, was was that same person as well. You know, we didn't say, you know, you hear a lot of the language We're saying HIV. Well, then it was AIDS. Oh, you have AIDS. So anybody who did not even have an AIDS diagnosis, because HIV is the virus and AIDS is what develops once your immune system is broken down by HIV, because the medications have advanced and many people are living, like I mentioned, but before the medications got as well as they are and people, you know, were not getting into care years ago then, you know, AIDS was the thing. And it's like, ooh, they have AIDS. You don't want people to breathe on you. You don't want to be in the same room with them. And yes, I, I can say that, wow, once I learned, I was like, oh gosh, I'm so ashamed because I had the same stigmatizing language. Um, I had the same stigmatizing attitudes. And then I learned from other people in the movement. And then HIV happened in my life. So, you know, now, I guess like you asked with the language, the main thing that is hindering people who are living with or affected by HIV is stigma. People are going to talk about you regardless. It doesn't matter if you're HIV positive, if you're HIV negative, if you're tall, if you're short, if you're light, if you're dark, people are going to talk and they're going to stigmatize. And, you know, when it comes to HIV, because it is a sexually transmitted disease, mainly as a blood disease, it is stigmatizing. And years ago, when HIV came out, you know, before it wasn't called HIV, it had numbers, and then they came up with a name, and it was called GRID. And, And I may need to be corrected, and I should have looked it up ahead of time, but gay-related infectious disease or immunodeficiency disease. That's what it was, gay-related immunodeficiency disease. So it was called GRID. Once the scientists came up with that, then they realized, oh, this is not a gay disease. This is a human disease, because now you have women contracting it. And then you have children being born perinatally with HIV. And, you know, and then the language of AIDS started to kind of, you know, hamper. And then there was the separation, HIV and AIDS. And then people were saying things like full blown AIDS. There's no such thing as full blown AIDS. That makes it sound like, oh, you can get a quarter of AIDS, a half of AIDS. No, you're either, there's either HIV or there's AIDS. People who are, First, once they first contract the disease, when you first contract HIV, it is just that HIV. You don't contract AIDS. you contract HIV, the virus, and once that virus starts destroying your immune system, if you aren't on medication or your immune system just cannot fight at all, it can then start getting it'll start deteriorating and then it can develop into an AIDS diagnosis. When it is categorized as an AIDS diagnosis, we use numbers as we call CD4, which everybody born a human being has a CD4, which is our T, I call them my soldiers that fight off infection or your T helper cells. So with the T helper cells, when it comes to HIV, if your T helper cell count is under 200 and you are diagnosed with HIV, you then fall into the category of AIDS. That's when your immune system is breaking down so much to a point that you're developing the disease. So a CD4 that is over 200, they consider that just HIV. Now, someone living with HIV can have a, you know, I was considered at one point a um, non-progressor. And what that meant was this, my immune system was fighting off the infection so well that I didn't need medication. And when I was diagnosed, it was the the thing that the doctors and scientists were telling you that if your CD4 levels or your soldiers were at least 500 and more, you were quote unquote at a normal range. So with that, you didn't need medication um, because your immune system is fighting it off now over time with research, which is so important. The research has found, the science has found that it is better to get in care immediately. And it helps you fight off that infection better, longer. And this is another reason why people are living so much longer. Um, So the main thing now is um, to get right into care immediately, get on medication immediately. So, and I think I kind of went all over the place, um, and I didn't mean to, because you did ask about language. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I
0: got some language. I was writing out CD four and numbers. I wrote down some numbers. So, okay, some numbers. Yes, (laughs) Um, thank you so much.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and just to you know, kind of go ahead and elaborate on you know your question with the language. It's important that within the, as we say, the HIV community of those who are either working in the field, those who are part of because they're living with or allies, those that are supportive. It's important to understand the new language when it comes to HIV, because we never want to stigmatize anyone, make anyone feel left out, make anyone feel rejected. Um, So everything that I said, all that to say is HIV has always been so stigmatizing because of its origin and because of the original language. So you may have someone, you know, like myself, where, you know, years ago when I started telling my story, my story seemed to be a new type of story. Here, you know, I'm this woman that's married into a a long-time relationship, and then I contracted from, you know, my ex-husband, and those stories weren't being told, but this was happening for years. It's just that so many people are not out with it. So, you know, once I started telling my story, yes, it was scary because, you know, I would hear, oh, that the AIDS lady, the HIV lady. And like you said earlier, oh, you got that thing. And, you know, and I would hear those conversations, the, you know, the dirty looks and and it's scary. But when you have a support system it makes it that much easier and when you're able once you get your support system it builds your confidence and then you're able to then educate people so at one point yes i i used to get on the defense when people say oh so you have aids and i'm like no i don't have aids i have hiv and you know and that was the very beginning once i was even able to just embrace and say okay alicia this is a part of your life but when i matured and i started to learn more in this movement why get on the defense when people don't understand? You just help educate them. Don't get on the defense. If somebody said something incorrectly, you know, you just softly just educate them on the proper way to say things. Given a quick example, like people who have um, mental or physical handicaps, like years ago, we would say, oh, they're retarded. Well, that's a complete curse word to a person that's mentally or physically disabled. So we don't say those things. And that's just giving an example within the HIV movement.
0: And I like the example that you gave. I'm a special education teacher by trade. So sometimes mm. I'm like, yeah, that word doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Well, it exists, but we shouldn't say that anymore. We
2: don't say it. Right.
0: Yeah, so. <laughs> yes. But, um, so how do you continue to share
2: your story? Uh, or why do you continue to share it? Well, I continue to share my story because I know it's not about me. When I embraced the fact that HIV is a part of my life in this way, I prayed and I'm like, okay, God, how am I supposed to share my story? And all of these people have all of these different stories. Everybody has a story. Nobody wants to hear from me. And, you know, spiritually, God said to me, it's not even about you. And it took me aback and I was like, wow, it's not, this thing happened, it did. And it was devastating for me when I got the news 20 years ago. But when I took a stand and made a difference and started making a difference in my own life by sharing my story, I realized I was helping other people. When I started telling, you know, this is who I am and this is what happened to me, you know, it was sadness, it was anger, it was all these different types of emotions. But once I started to mature in this walk and, you know, people would come to me and it's like, Alicia, you know, I heard your story and you helped me because maybe they had a loved one who dealt with it or maybe they, you know, just found out that they were diagnosed or maybe they want to go get tested. So when I realized that even though something that the enemy meant so bad for me turned around for my good was helping so many other people, I just couldn't stop. And then as I grew in this movement and found out so many different things that need to be changed, like the criminalizing laws in all of our different states, North Carolina was able to modernize the North Carolina um, HIV laws. They were so criminalizing and they had not been changed since the 80s. So, you know, people were, you know, being criminalized for spitting. You can't pass HIV to anybody by spitting on them. While that's disgusting as it is, spitting in itself, but, you know, people who were maybe getting in fights or having altercations with police officers, instead of being penalized for, you know, maybe having that altercation, it was more so the spitting because they're HIV positive. So they were really being criminalized for that. Or people getting into monogamous relationships and there's something going wrong, one person's positive, One is not. And then once they break up, the one who is not positive is like, oh, well, they didn't share their status. Well, then that was a crime. And then people were getting locked up because somebody else got upset in a relationship. And it's like, how do you lock people up for a disease? Like it's just terrible. So you're seeing this disease and you're not seeing this person, which is why we had to humanize this thing. And the language changed to I am a person living with HIV instead of saying you're an AIDS person or you're an AIDS patient or you're the AIDS woman or you're the HIV. I'm not the HIV, I am a woman. So that's where everything started to get humanized. Because, you know, we had to really, really crack down on the criminalization that was going on.
0: Oh, that's so cool. And it's part of one of our good news story, because we even intertwine our story with good news. I'm going to let Latricia ask you some questions because I know she is eager to hear your answers. Yes.
1: Thank you. Wow, you have covered so much information and so many of the questions that I wanted to ask are surrounding everything that you've covered. So I just want to backtrack a little bit. One, you talked about treatment. You can't get treated if you don't get tested. So let's talk about the importance of testing and who should get tested because i have let me throw in my second question that you can answer in combination with this i was reading that the majority of women who contract the hiv virus get it from heterosexual contact so my the second part of my question is should women who are in monogamous heterosexual relationship or monogamous relationships period mm-hmm. Should they get tested as well? And what is the frequency?
2: I feel like everybody should get tested. Then I hear people say, um, like you said, monogamous relationships. So I was in a monogamous relationship and I contracted the virus. It is a loaded question. All of it is a loaded question. And I say that because you have women and men. Let's not forget about our men. I'm gonna try not to be long-winded with this, but when it comes to HIV. Because of the historical stigma with it being a gay disease, when women contract HIV from heterosexual relations from a man, it is automatically assumed that the man slept with other men. So, you know, the, the wording, This is another part of new language. So in the HIV movement, we say MSM, which means men who sleep with men. Well, back then it was gay. And I don't want to use the other profane words that were, you know, used for gay relations. Or we now we say same gender loving. So, you know, women who are who contract HIV through heterosexual uh, relations, it's automatically assumed that the man is gay, and that is not always the case. It's not always the case that the man is sleeping with men. There are men who contract HIV from women, while it is not as common. You know, as vice versa, but it does happen. Um, So, all of that to say it's important for everybody to get tested. It's difficult for women or men who are in abusive relationships. Um, We find that it's a high rise on domestic violent relationships because, you know, just I can't speak for the man, I can speak for women. But with women who are in relationships of that matter, you know, they may not even have a choice. So this is where, you know, having a safe space or a safe person that you can talk to. And, you know, many people who are in those type of relationships don't. But aside from that, anyone who is having sexual relationships outside of just one person, it's important to get tested. It's important for people who are having sexual relationships to be able to be open to even have those conversations. I used to tell you know young people when I spoke with them that if you can't have a simple conversation about sex, then you don't need to be having sex. I can't sit as an activist, as a woman living with and tell them, use a condom, Ab- abstinence. Yes, use a condom. And yes, it's best to abstain, but I abstained as well. So all that to say, it's, have conversations. The main thing is to be very open and communicative when it comes to STDs and protecting yourself and getting tested. It's scary because some people don't want to know. But having that conversation and knowing that it's a safe conversation, I'm in a safe space, that I have a support system, then definitely you know, go get tested. And in doing so, I tell people, if you're afraid to get tested, make sure that you have someone that can go with you, you know, someone that you trust. And nowadays, because there's been so much advancement, there are support systems within the medical field. So you have your case managers and your social workers that are going to be there for you, even some of your nurses. Now, not everyone has a good story with getting tested and getting the diagnosis, but the main thing is going to get tested. And I'm going to stop there because I want to make sure that I'm answering the questions because I am so good for sharing so much information in one city.
1: <laughs> Listen, I'm loving it. I am learning stuff. So I love to learn. So I'm just loving every bit of it. Like I said, you, you said a lot. So I just want to go back to something else you said. You said that there are people who are in relationships where one person had HIV and the other person didn't. And you also talked about stigma. Let's talk about the stigma associated with a person who has the diagnosis and they enter a relationship with someone. Now we already talked about having the conversations about getting tested, but what what is the conversation like, and how do you make someone feel comfortable that it's okay to be in a relationship and still have sexual relations without passing the virus to your partner?
2: That's a very, very good question. And to be, I guess to be safe and be transparent, I'm going to talk about me because I can't speak for everyone else. Everyone's situation is different and how they approach it and have conversations. Some people feel that it's best to tell your diagnosis immediately. For me, when I was diagnosed and, you know, and I started to feel a little bit more comfortable with the person that I am and I decided to start dating again, I would wait anywhere from one to three weeks to say something. And we would just be in conversation. There would be no touching, no kissing or anything like that. Just us getting to know one another and then when i felt like we were getting close then i would you know share the news and i would be terrified and every single time yes i got rejected um, sometimes it was nicely which i don't know how you nicely get rejected but then there were times that you know it was devastating when i say you know nicely rejected i wouldn't get a phone call again and then there were times like someone literally said to me ill You have that thing and you didn't tell me. And I felt really bad and I felt hurt and embarrassed and and just the dirty feeling, the negative feelings that I had towards myself began to come back. So once I really got a little bit more stronger, you know, I would share and people say, well, how would you start that? Well, a lot of times when people are talking, they start to tell the type of work that they do. So instead of saying the work that I did to get paid for, I would say, you know, well, I'm an activist, you know, for HIV. Wow. How did you get into that work? And it's like, well, I'm a woman living with HIV. But before I would say a woman living with HIV, I used to say I am HIV positive. And then You know, and I would give them a moment. And a lot of times it would be like, oh, wow. Um, So tell me more about that. And it would be a teaching moment. And I would give them the opportunity to make a decision to further a relationship or even a friendship with me. So I found it best for Alicia to be open in the very beginning that eliminates me getting any feelings. It eliminates the feeling of rejection because I'm confident in who I am. And I'm also giving you the opportunity that I was not given. So I think that, you know, having the conversation um, helps to educate the next person. And, you know, if that other person is not comfortable you know, being in a relationship with you, that's okay and that's their choice, but still give them that opportunity by sharing with them and educating them or at least getting connected with people where even if you have the conversation in a group or, you know, with a medical professional or another activist like myself, but people who do make the decision where one is negative and one is positive, we have a thing that we call PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And that is a pill that people who are HIV negative can take if they are making a decision to be in a relationship with someone HIV positive so that they do not contract HIV. Even, you know, People who are HIV negative, both in a relationship, but you know maybe that's not monogamous, and they want to get on prep to make sure that they don't contract the virus. That's something available. Um, so prep is something that's available. It is a one-time pill that you take every single day, and it comes along with labs and staying, you know, in the care of a physician. But those options are there. And then you know you mentioned. Um, the undetectable thing, not passing the virus. So I'm considered undetectable where the virus is suppressed because I am on medication and my medication is helping to suppress the uh, virus. So we have a, you know, something that we call U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. So like I said, that means I am taking my medication, I'm in care, the virus is suppressed, I cannot pass the virus to my sexual partners if I decide to have condomless sex. So U equals U um, is a very, very hot topic. It's a very, very important topic. Some people are not in agreement with U equals U because not everyone can reach an undetectable status who is HIV positive. And that's many different reasons. Our immune systems are all different. So, you know, like I said, not everyone can reach it. But what doctors and scientists are doing is trying to make sure that medications are updated and people are staying in care. I hope that answers.
1: Yes, it did. It did. Wow. I'm telling you, I'm just learning stuff. It is just wonderful. I have just one more question mm-hmm. of you. Well, let me see if Phyllis wants to go. I don't want to be monopolizing <laughs> the whole thing. So, um, and cool. I
0: have one question too. You. you can go, then I'll go after you.
1: Okay. So, I wanted to go back to the treatment piece. Since we're talking about women, I wanted to talk about how does HIV affect women in general and Black women in particular?
2: Hmm. So how does HIV affect Black women? I think I probably need a little bit more elaboration. Do you mean as far as like on an emotional? So kind of elaborate a little bit more of how it affects women. What do you mean?
1: Because of the makeup of a woman's body, there are different ways that it can impact her as opposed to men because of the gynecological system, because of having children, breastfeeding, and those types of things because of the body makeup of a woman. So how does it impact a woman differently than a man? And then as far as Black women specifically, all of it. So the physical, the emotional, and and I guess women in general, I guess it affects all women, but does it affect Black women differently? That may even be a question. Maybe it affects all women the same. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I can say definitely HIV affects everybody differently, but, you know, pinpointing on women. So the thing with uh, women contracting um, HIV, so before The treatments have advanced the way that they have. So mothers can pass HIV to their unborn children um, without being in care. So there are women who maybe they didn't have the opportunity to get prenatal care. So when women get pregnant now, you know, they are offered, I'm hoping that all physicians are this way, um, offering women currently in today's time um, an HIV test to be sure that they are not HIV positive. Um, And I say that because there are many women, I know so many women in this movement who either aborted their children um, in the early days of HIV because, you know, they were told that they're going to pass it to their baby and kill their child. There's women that I know who never had children because they were diagnosed like in the early or the late 80s, early 90s, and they did not have children because of that. Um, And then also women who are living with HIV and they have a child, if they don't pass it to their child because of medication, then there's a possibility through breastfeeding. So now that science is advancing the way it is and women are on medication, they have an option to breastfeed, but doctors are still saying that there could be a risk. So many women want to breastfeed. It's bonding. It's it's, um, healthier. But since, like I said, science has advanced so much, um, women, they have the risk of passing, you know, HIV through breast milk. Um, But again, if they're on medication and that is like slim to none. So that's that's what makes it different when it comes to our women. I will say when it comes to Black women um, in particular, because this is the you know the time we're talking about um, women and girls HIV awareness, and then we just had um, Black National Black HIV Awareness Day. So many, you know, our our culture is disproportionately affected by not just HIV but multiple illnesses, multiple other disparities, um, even wealth and things of that matter: jobs, um, food access to care. So that's another thing. Women normally are the ones who take care of everything and everybody before we take care of ourselves. So we are last on the list when it comes to going to our doctor's appointments, taking care of ourselves. So it's just very, very important for for us as women to make sure that we have a support system. We need a reminder besides a paper calendar Besides an electronic calendar, because sometimes we get so busy that, like I said, we don't focus on us. But it's important for us to go to our annual appointments to get our exams. You know, this is how we're able to find out if, you know, we have a cancer diagnosis early getting our mammograms, getting our cervical exams, and now STD exams. We have to do that. Our STD testing is very, very important. This is how I found out so soon about you know, my diagnosis, because I consistently went to my appointments and I knew my body. And though I was a single mother and I was busy taking care of home, working, school and all of that, I still found some time to take care of me. And when I didn't feel right, I knew that if I break down, who's going to take care of the household? Who's going to take care of the children? So it was important for me to find out what was going on with me. So the diagnosis I received was found within six months of me contracting the virus versus like years ago, people weren't finding out to like 10 years or so, or until they already had an AIDS diagnosis. So all of that to say, it's very, very important for us as women to make sure that we're getting our proper annual exams. That's definitely going to help. Wow. Wow.
0: And you know what, Alicia, mm-hmm. um, they'll say you don't have to get it every year unless mm-hmm. you have a irregular diagnosis. Oh, not, not diagnosis, but mm-hmm. um, results from your yeah. pap smear.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me and
0: Latricia, we sometimes think along the same lines, but I learned so much from that blurb mm-hmm. about um, gynecology and all the things that go into. Being a woman and yeah. and having HIV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My question was, I remember a few years ago, it was like one in 25 people have HIV. So I would be at the club like, OK, so it's about 75 of us in here. So, right. <laughs> you know, but I, I know statistics have changed since then. I don't go to the mm-hmm. club anymore. But <laughs> what are the latest statistics of the... And I'm not counting anymore. (laughs) Just just what are the statistics of people having the diagnosis of Uh
2: HIV or AIDS? Well, I have to say, when I um, moved to North Carolina, so right now I am in Guilford County in North Carolina. Um, So when I moved here, HIV was. Goodness, Guilford County was like 20 something on the list. And then, you know, maybe like 13 on the list. And now we're like number three on the list. So all that to say that um, there's more than instead of like the one in 20 people, it's more like one in seven people living with HIV, one in seven who don't know their, um, their diagnosis. There's over goodness in about 2018, there was an estimate of like over 36,000 new HIV infections that occurred in the United States. Now, when it comes to statistics, it takes them a couple of years to gather that information. So we're talking 2018. Um, So now we're in 2021. Those numbers, I can't say that they double, but if we're talking one in seven people not knowing their diagnosis, and you're in a room of a hundred people. Well, one in seven of those hundred people don't know, you know, their status. And over time, as medication and science has advanced, yes, some of the cases have decreased. I think, um, I heard about seven. There's been like a 7% decrease, um, compared to like 2014, but still, you know, it's still a lot. So even if we decrease that and say, if we're in a room of 10 people, that's one in seven. So at least out of 10 people, one could be two of those people could be HIV positive and not know it. So the rates are still going up while they're not going up as drastically as they used to. I'll say that the highest prevalence is in the South. And me being a northerner, Even though I contracted HIV while being a northerner, I still thought that there were better resources and stuff because I knew back home there's access to so many different things. So STD education, activism wasn't a part of my life when I lived up north, but I still knew that there was so much access So when it came to being diagnosed here and I saw how people were not able to get in care like me, I've never had issues getting in care and getting access to what I needed or what I wanted as it pertains to my health. But I noticed so many people do have that issue. And, you know, if you look at like HIV prevalence um, for the South, if you look at a map, normally it's colorized like in the reds or like an orange or something like that. And it's always red in the deep South, the Bible belts. And it's unfortunate that the South is that way when it comes to not just HIV, but a whole lot of things, which I guess is why us as Northerners would be like, oh, the South is slow. But when I moved here and I realized what this slow meant, it meant access to things because in my younger days, you know, in living up North, when I heard the South, I'm thinking farms and all of that stuff. So when I moved down South in my early twenties, I was shocked because, you know, I just, I didn't know it was as urban. You know, I really did. not it's such a misconception unless you do your own research. But when it comes to these, um, to STDs and not just HIV, like, herpes is on the rise. Syphilis is back on the on the rise and gonorrhea. So all of these STDs are really on the rise. And now that we've been caught up in this pandemic, people haven't been able to get tested because of fear of going to doctors because they don't want to contract the virus. We've been physically distancing. So, you know, I probably, it's 2021 now. I'm guessing in the next couple of years, we're going to see some different rates when it comes to all of those diseases
0: yes yes um that's why i named this um hiv is still a thing yeah. and you you i'm so ready to call you dr diggs you're gonna have <laughs> to let us know when you in you. your dissertation because you explain things so well Thank and you. i just understand it so much better when you give us an explanation we normally do something called a principal challenge mm-hmm. um Before you give us the principal challenge, can you tell our listeners where they can find you?
2: Yes. If you're on Facebook, you can find me at Alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, Lovely Diggs. And lovely is L-U-V-L-E-E. And then my last name is Diggs. Yes, I'm lovely. But my lovely is because my family calls me Lee and I always write love L-U-V. So that's where the lovely. So it's love Lee. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, just you know, me and my silliness. But um, that's on Facebook, on Instagram under Healed Lee. I stand on my healing. So my nickname is Healed Lee, H-E-A-L-E-D-L-E-E. That's on Instagram as well as on uh, Twitter. And I'm glad I have this near me. So I wrote a book and it is entitled Standing on My Healing from Tainted to Chosen. And that is my memoir. There's maybe a chapter or two that's about my life as a woman living with HIV. But this is really my life story from the age of three to, I think, 43. So um, it is standing on my healing because that's something that I was told spiritually to stand on my healing. And at one point I thought I was tainted. And when I got educated and embraced who I am, I realized that I was actually chosen for this work. So that's where my title comes from.
0: <laughs> All right, yes, I like it.
2: Thank and
0: you. now I, I get it. I was, I get it. <laughs> and uh, what would you like for the listeners to take action with? What is the principal
2: challenge? Principal challenge: Live them out. The principal challenge is to get educated, get tested. Don't discriminate and stigmatize against people. Embrace, love them, and let's build unity.
0: Absolutely, and I believe you do um, participate or practice Kwanzaa. So you know that's a principle, and we we live the principles all throughout the year, not just during Kwanzaa. It was yeah. such a joy having you on Thank the you, show. Lady. And we look forward
2: to staying connected. Yes, absolutely. Thank you all so much for having me. If there's any questions outside of this, feel free to reach out to me. We
1: will. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for being here.
2: My pleasure.
1: Awesome.
0: You all have a good day. You too. For our next section, open your heart, ears, and mind as we spread the good news. Not rumors, not rubbish. Living the principles we spread the good news. The Diva Foundation's Sister Circle Women's Health Awareness Tour will make three virtual stops in 2021. Each stop will feature three outstanding panelists who will have honest, open conversations around their unique stories, perspectives and approaches to owning their health in addition to a featured performance. The first stop will launch on March 10th, ding ding ding, 2021, which is National Women and Girls HIV AIDS Awareness. Interactive multimedia elements such as video interviews and polling questions will be incorporated throughout the meeting. Stay tuned to see where other tours will follow. Zakia McKenzie is working to carry the torch of important work of trailblazers, such as Deidra Johnson and Eleanor Harrison. In 2018, she co-founded an organization called Ending Criminalization of HIV and Over-Incarceration in Virginia, or Echo VA. The objective is to change the racial bias laws that are unfairly used against people living with HIV. It's like Alicia looked at my notes, but she did it. So she touched on that in the episode. So good news. There are people working on stopping that. Deja Taylor is a senior at Iowa City West High School who was once interested in becoming a surgeon. Taylor decided to develop sutures that would change color if the patient's pH level alters, making it easier to indicate infection. Taylor, who once struggled with putting on a glove properly at the beginning of her class, is now on track to win $25,000 and participate in the final competition. That's $250,000. So there are young people who are working on health science. That concludes our good news. Letricia, our soul
1: snack. Our soul snack for today comes from a Swahili proverb, and it says, Wealth if you use it, comes to an end. Learning, if you use it, increases. That's our show for today. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast, rate, and review. Until next time, expand your
0: minds and impact your communities. Thanks for listening to living the principles podcast. Be sure to visit us at livingtheprinciples365.com to access the show and join in on the conversations.